Good morning, Liberty Lake Church. Thank you for your patience. Won't you join us with You Are My King, amazing love as we worship our King. seated for a second. Good morning, I'm Travis Burks. I'm the worshiping youth director here at Liberty Lake Church, and so welcome for those of you who are new, and for those of you who are here, hey! So uh, here are the announcements. Uh, 
there will be no youth group tonight um, with the new year. Uh, there's no youth group tonight, so we will resume on January 10th. That's next Sunday at 5.30 downstairs in the youth room. There's a men's breakfast Saturday, uh, January 9th at 8 a.m. Um, if you can help with cooking and serving, please arrive at 7.30 and you'll get an extra piece of bacon. Uh, ladies' night, uh, Monday, uh, January 11th at 6.30 p.m. Uh, come and join the other ladies for a fun of evening of uh, games and fellowship. Uh, please bring a snack to share. Uh, yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. So. Um, as you can tell, I am so easy when it comes to announcements because I just read off of the paper like it's lines. So nothing can ever go wrong, right? Uh, why don't you join us as we jump into Holy is the Lord.
God, we love you and we thank you and we praise you for all that you've done in our lives. And wow, you brought us through a whole year that by everything physical, with our eyes and with our senses, kind of sucked. But God, that's because of sin. And that's because of the wretchedness of uh, sinful nature and um, sinful diseases and everything, Father. And you are a God who redeems. You reach down and you redeem each and every person from the wretchedness from the wretchedness of that world. And we thank you for that. And we love you for that. And uh, as we dive into Scripture, as Gary leads us, and uh, we get to see how your enthronement begins, which began on the cross in death, Father, which is totally backwards from the way the world sees success and enthronement. Um, I pray that we would be reminded 
um, with whatever it is that the Holy Spirit wants to teach us. And may it not be Gary's words, but may it be your word, God. We love you and we praise you and we thank you. Amen. back all right thank you that was my next question <laughs> good morning for those of you that uh, may not know me I'm not pastor Shane Shane is out at uh, airway Heights this morning, preaching at, uh, I forgot the name of the church out there, but the uh, the pastor out there is also um, a reserve chaplain, and uh, he's been deployed for six months, and so we're, uh, we're sort of helping him out, and that's where he's at this morning, and so that's, uh, I guess my name is Gary Baker, I'm one of the elders here, so hang on, and uh, let's see where God takes us. I always like to start my sermons um, anytime I get a chance to preach with the words of King David in Psalm 1914 and his prayer. He said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, so um, Shane finished up the end of chapter 14 in Mark last time uh, before Christmas service. Or last last week, I guess, wasn't it? And uh, so we are going to be looking today at uh, the beginning of chapter 15 in Mark. And we're going to be looking at the trial of Jesus before Pilate. Um, so when we think about a trial today, uh, we think about something that's a, a fairly, um, fairly standard, supposed to be fair, supposed to be uh, some some choices there. Um, the right to a fair trial to us is a is a cherished American freedom. Um, I did find a story about a a cowboy that lived in the Wild West days around here, and he got arrested because he was found stealing horses. They brought him before the judge, and the judge said, "You are accused of stealing horses. How do you plead?" Yeah, cowboy said, not guilty, Your Honor. Judge says, all right, you have a choice. You can be tried by a panel of three judges or by a jury of 12 of your peers. The cowboy looked at him and said, Judge, I don't understand that word peers. What's that mean? The judge explained that a jury of your peers means people just like you. Cowboy thought for a second. He said, well, I'll take the judges. I don't want 12 horse thieves judging me. So today we're going to look at Jesus standing trial before Pilate. It was a trial that led up to his crucifixion. And it was not a proper trial as we would think of it one today. Um, in fact, um, one of the, the people that I read and got a lot from for today was uh, R.C. Sproul. He called it one of the most wicked events of human history. So let's, let's start off, let's actually look at the scriptures where we're at. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to it. Um, Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no farther answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison, who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. 
And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, before this happened, the night before, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, had brought Jesus up before the high priest in the middle of the night. And this is the scene that, that Shane was looking at last time when he talked about uh, Peter's denial of Jesus three times. It was during that trial by the, the Jewish leadership that, um, that that happened. They charged it, uh, Jesus with blasphemy. He was actually charged with a crime for claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah. So let's, let's review that before we proceed here, just to kind of set the stage. So this is, this is the night before. This is in the courtyard of the house of the high priest, um, Caiaphas. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Now we know today with our hindsight, Jesus was not blaspheming. He was telling the truth. The high priest asked him if he was the Messiah, and he said yes. He was the Messiah is the Messiah. But the high priest and the other members of the council did not believe him, considered him to be a heretic and a blasphemer because they considered him to be just a, another human being, but he was claiming to be equal to God, the Son of God. Now, because trials at night were illegal in the Roman Empire, this really was nothing but a kangaroo court. Um, they brought false witnesses to testify against Jesus. He was not afforded the right to call witnesses in his defense or to even to ask questions, cross-examine the people that were accusing him. But Jesus probably would not have called any even if he had been given the opportunity. We're pretty sure of that because silence is the primary thing you notice about Jesus during both phases of his trials. Caiaphas accused him of blasphemy, and Jesus said nothing in his defense. So the Sanhedrin gave him their predetermined verdict, guilty and deserving death. The problem, though, that the Sanhedrin had is they were living in occupied territory, right? Palestine at the time was under the control of the Roman Empire. And under Roman law, the Jewish leaders were not given the authority to sentence anyone to death, or at least not to carry out the sentence. So they could, they could bring Jesus before the Sanhedrin. They could accuse him of all these things. They could render a verdict, but they could not carry out that penalty of death. The only person that could do that was the Roman representative ruling in the area. And that position at the time was held by a man named Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, that's a, that's a name 
you know, with the Easter story and, and uh, so many things that we go through every year, we're pretty familiar with that name. It even shows up in, uh, in the creeds of the church. Uh, the Nicene Creed um, is one where part of it says that he was, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. So I think because of the familiarity with the name um, and because of his role in the trial of Jesus, we think of him as a pretty important guy in the Roman world. But really, he wasn't um, that important in Rome's eyes. Um, Pontius Pilate was um, basically a third-rate politician who had been posted to Palestine to act as an administrator and uh, or prefect is what the title they gave him over an area that had been conquered by Roman forces and was now part of the empire. And we know from historical writings, um, even aside from the Bible, Josephus wrote about it, uh, that Pilate had a reputation for being, um, well, he was inflexible, stubborn, and, uh, and cruel. He was the fifth prefect that was assigned to Palestine, and he served the longest term in that capacity. He served from A.D. 26 to 37, 11 years. And that was not a sign of uh, competence and favor. It was uh, more a sign of displeasure from Rome. Uh, when I was in the army, there were a couple of uh, places that you got stationed that we kind of, we called them the armpit of the world. Um, Palestine, in the eyes of the Roman government, to get assigned there, that was one of the armpits of the world. It was not a plum assignment. It was uh, in an area where uh, the people, mainly, you know, uh, the Jews, were known as being uh, hard-headed, um, rebellious. They did not like Roman occupation or Roman rule, and uh, there were uh, minor rebellions and insurrections going on all the time. Um, so Pilate was eventually fired by the Roman emperor Caligula and uh, banished to northern Europe, where uh, tradition says he committed suicide. While he was in Palestine, he was despised by the vast majority of the Jews. He had a tendency to put down um, any sign of insurrection with violence and a lot of bloodshed. And, uh, and he actually provoked the Jews on, on several occasions. Um, not long after he took over as prefect, he invited um, Roman garrisons to come in to the temple area in Jerusalem, carrying their banners. Now, the Roman banners would have had images of the emperor, eagles, all kinds of things up on top of their standards as they marched. And to the Jews, those were, those were idols. Uh, they were viewed as, as bringing an idol into the holy area around the temple of God. And, uh, and Pilate knew this. He knew exactly what he was doing. But his, uh, his main thing was to prove that he had the power and that he could do whatever he wanted. Um, the other example I read about was uh, while Pilate was in control, he uh, started the manufacture, the construction of a, a really pretty good aqueduct system for Jerusalem to bring water into the city and um, public works. And that's, you know, that, that's a good thing, right? You get water into the city, you, you, uh, you help things out. The thing is, he went to the, the temple treasury and took the money to pay for that aqueduct system from the temple did not endear himself to the Jewish leadership by doing that. So he was not, not considered a friend of the Jews. And yet he was the guy that the Sanhedrin had to take Jesus before because they had no authority to do what they wanted to, which was to crucify or to, to execute him. So we read starting in verse 1 of uh, chapter 15 that when morning came, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, and the whole council had a meeting. They likely discussed uh, the options that they had. 
they knew that they um, they wanted Jesus dead. They had declared his um, blaspheme him as a blasphemer that that de deserved death, and so they had to go to to Pilate. Mark says that they bound him and led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate. And in verse two, Pilate asked him, "Are you the King of the Jews?" And he answered him, "You have said so." And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now Mark's account is very brief, and uh, that seems to be sort of a consensus with biblical scholars. When they talk about Mark, they talk about him as somebody that is not a big guy on detail. He, uh, he wanted to to get his ideas across, but he didn't put in a whole lot of scenario, fill-in kind of stuff. So there's not much of a conversation between Jesus and Pilate recorded by Mark. And the response of Jesus to Pilate, um, it, it loses a little of its translation, or a, a, a little of its message in its translation into English. In the, the original language, which uh, I believe would have been Aramaic, it was more of an emphatic, yeah, you said it. Uh, whereas in English, it just says, um, you have said so. This would have been more like, yep, you said it. It would have been an affirmation that, yes, you are correct. I am the king of the Jews. So Jesus was actually affirming that charge. Now remember, the Jews wanted Jesus killed for blasphemy, but they knew Pilate, Pilate wouldn't care about that. He wasn't interested in their religious squabbles. That's how he viewed it. And so they had to come up with a charge that would uh, be more important to Pilate, but still obtain their end, end game. Um, there's an example, actually, uh, you know, a different setting, but an example of that Roman attitude um, regarding religious laws. If you fast forward to Acts in chapter 18, there's a story about Paul. Uh, he's in Corinth, and he gets arrested by the Jewish leaders and hauled before the proconsul, which would be like the prefect. And Luke tells us about it um, in, chapter, in verse 12 of... Uh, all right. I'm sorry, chapter 18, verse 12 of Acts. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God, contrary to the law. So here again, their charge against Paul is blasphemy or heresy. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So that's the attitude that Rome had on um, various questions and, and points of Jewish law and uh, religious customs. Couldn't have cared less. But because the, the Sanhedrin wanted Jesus killed, again, they had to get Pilate to agree with them. So they came up with a, a trumped-up charge. Now, if Jesus really was trying to declare himself king in competition with the emperor, that would get Rome's attention. Uh, then, then you've got a serious sedition going on. So Jesus, he's not taking the Fifth Amendment here. He's admitting to the one crime that actually could justify the death penalty, um, the treasonous crime of usurping Caesar by claiming to be a king. At least that's how Pilate would have been seeing this. Now, at this point, Jesus probably could have avoided torture and the cross that was to come, but he said nothing in his defense. 
He gave Pilate the one legal excuse he needed to execute him. So last, last week, Shane talked about the difference, how, how different gospel writers can read or, or write it, rather, about the same event with a little bit different perspective, maybe more detail, maybe, let's say, just a different viewpoint. It, it doesn't mean that one of them's right or wrong. It just means there's another uh, view on it. So if we look at um, the Gospel of John, in chapter 18, he has a little bit more detail about conversation between um, Pilate and Jesus. Starting in verse 33, it says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? So John gives us more of this dialogue uh, between Pilate and Jesus. Jesus is still answering yes, and, uh, but he also gives Pilate a little bit more information. I think he's telling Pilate he's not interested in being king of the Roman Empire. His kingdom is higher than that. He is actually telling him, I don't know if Pilate caught on to this, he's actually telling him, I'm higher than the Roman Empire. My kingdom is a kingdom in, in heaven. He is king of kings, lord of lords. And ironically, Pilate has the truth incarnate the living word standing right in front of him. And he says, what is truth? Right there. So it's not that he didn't answer any of Pilate's questions, just that he answered nothing in his own defense. Mark tells us that Jesus made no answer to the charges against him so that Pilate was amazed. Why would he do that? There's a lot of places, many times in the four Gospels, when we read about Jesus putting the Jewish religious leaders in their place. A lot of times he does it in a, in a humorous, almost mocking way that leaves the crowds laughing at the, at the Jewish leaders. But now, when crucifixion and death is imminent, he makes no response. Why? Because it was the will of his Father. This is what God wanted to have happen. Just a few weeks ago, um, one of the, the things that we looked at was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew what was going to happen to him. And in chapter 14 of Mark, same, same book that we're in, verse 34, we read, And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And this is his disciples he's speaking to. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus knew where he was headed. And he also knew that it was his Father's will that this should happen. Now, more of, most of us... Um, we're more like Jonah than Jesus. You know, Jonah was given a mission from God, too. He was told to go to Nineveh and preach the word so that they might repent and that God might not have to destroy the city. And what does Jonah do? He says, I don't like these guys. Lord, I'm not going. And he ran away. He tried to. And God brought a big storm. He... Uh, had the sailors throw Jonah into the sea. He supplied a big fish to swallow him up, kept him in there for three days and coughed him up on dry land and at that point said, okay, Lord, I guess I'm going to Nineveh. 
and he went and he preached and he saved a lot of people. Um, but it it took um, it took a lot to get his attention to get him to do the Father's will when it was something that he didn't really want to do. Um, in my own life, uh, some of you may have heard some of this stuff, but um, I was uh, an Indian Health Service pharmacist up in Ketchikan, Alaska. I was the director. It was a it was a plum position. It was a great spot. People were great. Fishing was awesome. Um, we were up there quite a few years, and I was really happy about it. And they're just, I, I've never been somebody like Jonah directly was told by God what to do, right? I've never had that experience. I don't really know too many people today that can say they have. But what I have noticed over the years is when it's time for me to move in the, the military kind of things, um, I would start getting this restless feeling. I would just, you know, I knew. I knew that I should be moving on. And I also knew that in Browning, Montana, they really had need of my services. Um, there was a lot of things going on in Browning that I didn't really want to deal with. Um, but as an officer, I could see the need. And um, I just felt that that's where God was telling me to go. And Tammy and I even... We took a trip on uh, on the government's dime. Browning paid for us to come from Ketchikan to Browning, look the place over. They showed us around and got to talk to some of the folks that would be working for me if I took that job. And uh, went back to Ketchikan. And I'm standing there looking out the window. It was a beautiful sunny day, which in Ketchikan, a sunny day, beauty-wise, I'd put it up against anywhere. There aren't that many of them, but when they show up, they are gorgeous. And I'm looking at that, and I just thought, you know, nah, I like it here. This is a really a pretty cool spot. And I called them up, and I told them I declined the position. Well, the Lord had other things in mind, and uh, it was amazing to me in retrospect that just within days of my having said that, my job in Ketchikan quit being fun. And uh, a lot of things started happening that uh, made it pretty apparent to me that I wasn't supposed to be there. And I knew. I mean, it took me a few days to figure out what was happening. But once I did, it was like, okay, Lord, do I really have to go? And finally, I, uh, I called them up and they sent me the papers and I signed the contract and said I would go. And immediately, everything just leveled out. The situation in Ketchikan got, got better. I got a sense of peace. But I had to be thumped around a little bit before I would listen and do the will of the Father because it wasn't what I wanted to do. It wasn't my will. Jesus knew the will of his Father. And he had already told his disciples what to expect. If you look at uh, back in chapter 10 of Mark, verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what, must, what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Jesus was also fulfilling prophecy. Isaiah 53, chapter, uh, verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Isaiah chapter 50 says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. In Jeremiah we read, I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. And there are other prophecies. So, I guess the way it looks to me, Jesus did not offer any defense because he knew what was going to happen and he wanted the will of the Father to be done. Any defense that he might made might have potentially disrupted the process and Jesus knew that it had to happen. He knew the full well, the pain and suffering he'd go through. But he knew it had to happen. Now, we know Pilate was not a good man. We talked about that. He was cruel, oppressive. He was used to having his own way in Palestine, even if it meant blood and violence and uh, cost the lives of the people that were under him. But he was not an idiot. We don't have any reason to believe he was stupid. We see, starting in verse 6 of our scripture today, that Pilate had misgivings about condemning Jesus. He could see through the lies of the chief priests and the scribes. Mark tells us he knew Jesus had been delivered to him for trial out of envy. And in Matthew's account of Jesus' trial before Pilate, we read this in Matthew 27, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now we know Pilate was not a pious man. He was not a believer, but given the culture he lived in, there's every chance that he was superstitious. And uh, his wife's warning of a dream, telling her of Jesus' righteousness, would probably have made a pretty big impact on him, would have made him have a few second thoughts. And he already knew that the charges against Jesus were made up by the Jewish leaders. But Pilate was in a bad spot. He uh, He was on the naughty list in Rome. There had already been a number of insurrections, right? And he had, would put those down with bloody violence. And uh, next thing you know, the religious leaders are sending complaints to Rome. And after a few of those complaints had come in, Pilate starts getting put on notice. You better get your house in order. You need to be able to take care of things down there without all this bloodshed. The Romans had their own... Um, peace that they enforced. They enforced it pretty strictly, but they wanted peace. They didn't want constant insurrections and rebellions and uh, people revolting against the government. So they, Pontius Pilate knew at this point that if he didn't take care of this situation and pacify the people, and there was another revolt, that it was probably going to be the end of his days as as the prefect. He already had pretty, in, pretty low influence in Rome. So he's trying to find a way around his dilemma, right? He had a custom of releasing a prisoner during the Passover feast, probably trying to make himself look good or at least a, a little bit better in front of the people. And so the crowd starts asking him to do that. And in verse 8, he says, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And you notice he didn't ask, the religious leaders, he knew what their answer was going to be. He's asking the crowd. He's trying to get the, uh, the common people involved here. He knows that the, the Sanhedrin um, are just envious of Jesus, but he's hoping that the reason for his, their envy was because of his popularity and influence with the people. So he's hoping that maybe I can get the people to speak up here, I can get out of this, save face with Rome, and still not have to execute this guy that I know is not guilty. Well, the attempt at leniency didn't work. There's another prisoner there named Barabbas. It says that he's being held for murder during the insurrection. Now, I'm guessing that if it happened during an insurrection, 
um, it was probably Roman soldiers or officials that were killed. And probably at that point, Barabbas was sort of a hero to the crowd. You know, we call him a criminal, and he was. But if he was um, involved in violence against Rome, uh, the people probably didn't look at that, you know, as a real bad thing. And Mark tells us that the chief priests were able to stir up the crowd to release Barabbas instead of Jesus. Now, at this point, Pilate's got to be getting pretty frustrated. He knows that Jesus is not guilty of trying to lead an uprising against Rome, but he still can't figure out how to release him and still save face with Rome. If he lets Jesus go, the Jewish leadership will report to Rome that Pilate was in cahoots with a rebel trying to declare himself king. In fact, in one of the other Gospels, the Jewish leaders tell um, Pilate that if you let this man go, you, you're no friend of Rome. We have no king but the Roman emperor. So Pilate makes one more attempt, starting in verse 12. Pilate said again to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And that, you know, that question alone must have irritated the Jewish leadership to no end because they did not consider him the king of the Jews. But Pilate says, the man you call the king of the Jews. I can just see Caiaphas going, wait a minute. I didn't say that about him. And they cried out again, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Wow. Pilate essentially is just throwing up his hands, saying, fine, have it your way, I'm done. Um, and again, one of the other Gospels has him uh, washing his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I wash my hands of this whole mess. His blood be on your hands. Uh, this is what the chief priests and the Jewish council wanted all along. And uh, so Jesus is condemned. And Mark, again, is very brief in his description, but notice that he mentions Pilate had Jesus scourged before giving him over to be crucified, which was pretty standard um, once a person was condemned to crucifixion. Scourging means that Jesus was brutally flogged. It was a process that was meant to nearly kill its victim. The idea being that the person that was uh, receiving it would die faster on the cross. They'd already be in a weakened condition. A number of years ago, and I mean, it was quite a while back. I don't know exactly how long. But uh, there was an article published in the Journal of the American Medical Association where um, a, a Christian physician researched and then wrote in this medical journal um, what it would have been like. And just a little part of that says, the usual instrument was a leather whip in which small iron balls or sharp pieces of bone or metal were tied at intervals. The condemned person was stripped and fastened to a low post, thus bending the back so as to stretch the skin. Blood spurted at the first blow. As the soldier repeatedly struck the victim's back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions, and the leather straps and bone would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. As the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. It was not uncommon for the inner organs to be exposed. The agony and injury suffered by the recipient can't be overstated. Roman scourging was a fearful, horrible thing. And sometimes the victims died before they ever got to the cross. So how did the crowd, supposedly composed of the people that Jesus had been ministering to, how did they come to be convinced to condemn him? First of all, not everybody that was there um, how do I say it? you know, all of Jerusalem wasn't there. It was early in the morning. It was uh, the day before Passover. All the Jewish leadership really needed was enough people to um, make noise in front of Pilate. 
But before we condemn the crowd, we've got to also remember what was really happening. The crowd, the Jewish leaders, Pilate himself, they were all literally putty in the hands of God. God had already determined that Jesus must suffer and be killed in order to be offered as a sacrifice to save us, to save humanity. And he died for that purpose. So I'm going to read a couple paragraphs directly from uh, something I read from R.C. Sproul that I just thought was really good. It says, early one Friday morning, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was tried before Pilate. Most observers would have thought it was an ordinary court proceeding. However, it was a moment of cosmic significance, for it led to our Lord's crucifixion so that we can be reconciled to God. John Calvin comments, The Son of God stood as a criminal before a mortal man and there permitted himself to be accused and condemned, that we may stand boldly before God. This is still R.C. Sproul writing. Jesus endured a trial before men and a sentence of death so that his people would be acquitted in the heavenly court. Having been put on trial and suffering for our guilt, Jesus gives us his great righteousness so that we can stand before our Creator unafraid. No sacrifice could be greater, and there is no end to the thanksgiving we should offer for our Savior's atonement. Let us thank and praise him this day. Um, I've got a picture that, can you get that up there? Yeah. I've got a framed copy of this at home. It's one of my, my favorite um, pictures to look at. The first time I saw it, all I saw in that first little bit was Jesus holding up a man. I say, yeah. And, and it, it took a little bit before I noticed that the man is holding a hammer and a spike. So we have a picture of Jesus loving and holding and supporting the very person that nailed him to the cross. It's, just a, it's a powerful image, and I think it really is, it captures um, what our Savior is like. I'd like to think that if I had been present on that day, I would not have been among those calling, crucify him, crucify him. But I look at this picture and I'm reminded that in my heart, at the core of my being, I'm probably no different than they were. The biggest difference is that I have been blessed by God with the sacrifice of his only son so that I may have life and have it abundantly. John chapter 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Father, thank you so much. Uh, thank you doesn't adequately express, but it's, it's the words that we have, Lord, and we do thank you so much for uh, the gift of your Son and for your, your, your making uh, a path uh, for atonement so that we might be saved and someday might stand in your presence as your children. Help us, Lord, to always remember and to, uh, to, to have this gratitude as we go out. We're going to, um, to have communion today now. We're going to go from here to communion. And, uh, you know, as I thought about what to say, I kind of realized that this whole picture of the trial of Jesus um, pretty much says everything we need to say about communion as far as the purpose. Um, Jesus gave himself up for us willingly. He gave his body and his blood on that cross so that we might have eternal life. So let's 
just uh, word the read the words of institution back in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I always kind of think of this as the communion chapter. This is Paul writing. Um, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Oh, incidentally, um, yeah, okay, folks, are, if you don't have uh, the elements with you, uh, they're at the door, and there's some up here at this table. There's also um, one tray back there by the sound booth that is uh, gluten-free if you have that need. So go ahead and get the elements if you don't have them already. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the, the bread. I can open the top. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take the cup. Lord Jesus, thank you for shedding your blood, for delivering your body to the brutality of the Roman soldiers. Through your sacrifice, Lord, we're able to know your righteousness and to be able to stand before the Father in paradise, before you, free of blemish, free of guilt, Help us, Lord, each time we do this to truly remember and to give you thanks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Won't you join us for our final song, Beautiful One?
in this new year, in this new 2021. Continue to be glorious and exciting and amazing with what you have in store in each of our lives and draw us near to one another as the body, as the church um, that you broke um, on our behalf. We praise you and we thank you for that. And I pray a blessing on each and every one of my friends and family here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. Have a good week.